just comparing last night with tonight, I really enjoyed listening to the ladies' sweet songs, but I got to admit I prefer the men's strong thunder the way that you guys sing. Thanks for encouraging my heart. But I got to tell you, in comparison, those ladies were a lot more easy on the eyes than you guys are. Your wives and your daughters were lovely, were beautiful, were very attentive. And I've been hoping that you will be as attentive. There was one of the brothers here who was saying, man, after that beef dinner, it's going to be tough for us to stay awake with the metabolism, trying to digest. Well, brother, I got this bucket right here. And uh, should you need some refreshment, keep you awake. I'm sure that I can assist you with that. Anybody else who falls asleep, this is a deterrent to falling asleep, but instead staying awake. And you need the microphone. All right. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I hope you have the handout here. Uh, Manly Dominion got an itinerary for us tonight. Hope we can work through it. Genesis 1. Let's read together verses... 27 and 28. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding our bodies, and now we ask that you would feed our souls. Give us your Holy Spirit, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me take you on a little imaginary trip. Come on with me into the home of my friend. His name is Nick, and we're descending a stairway into his basement where we open a door and we enter into a handsomely finished billiard room. And I want to direct your attention to two items. The first item is the solid purple four ball. You see it there on the pool table, the billiard table. It's a billiard ball by trade. Its chief characteristic is passivity. Its vocation is to be acted upon to be pushed around, pushed around by cue sticks, pushed around by fellow balls, pushed around by bumper cushions. Second item I want to focus your attention on is my friend Nick there in the room. Nick is a skillful billiard player. And Nick's chief characteristic is not passivity, but instead it is domination. Nick determines premeditatedly in his head certain schemes for directing balls to certain destinations that he has deemed desirable, and then he aggressively imposes his plans with the forceful thrusts of his cue stick. Now, on the table of life, many men, like us, function a lot more like passive purple four balls than like aggressive, skillful billiard players. Many of us, instead of aggressively dominating and pushing around, 
we passively permit ourselves to be dominated and pushed around because we got a certain disease that we could call passive purple fourballism. It's observed in family life where men are couch potatoes, failing to husband and father and rule. And it's seen in vocational life where men are sluggards, failing to plan ahead and labor hard and drive to excellence. It's also seen in church life where men are AWOL, failing to lead and direct and labor. And that's why in some churches women carry the ball and men don't carry the ball because the men are passive. It's also seen in personal life where men are weaklings, failing to gird up their loins and exercise control and manage priorities. And because of this epidemic, this, this passive purple fourballism, which frankly, I want to confess to you, I got it myself. In fact, that's why I wrote the book, because mainly I'm grabbing myself by the scruff of the neck, and I'm calling on myself to be a man of dominion who demonstrates the traits that are found in the Lord's first words that he gives to us men, his image bearers, where he says there, he made us in his image, he blessed us, and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. And that's what I want to explore this evening. Look at the itinerary that we have laid before us. First, let's engage in some, in some textual exposition here on this theme. This is good medicine for us who've got this passive disease of not acting like the men we ought to be. We're told there that the first words of our maker to his image bearers, basically, and our being image bearers, we are to be like him. We are to imitate him. And if you look at the context here in the first chapter, it involves the first six days where the Lord has exercised the governing mastery over the earth. He looked at things in the beginning which were formless and void. It was a chaotic mess. And he whipped it into order. And he has subdued the earth. He has ruled over the earth. And now he's telling us, to imitate him. Look at that first word there, verse 28. Subdue, he says. Some pastors here. It's the Hebrew word kabosh, which means bring into bondage. It means make something to serve you by force. A like Hebrew word kabesh is the word footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, Sit at my footstool, and I will make your enemies under your feet. And so we see how the idea of a footstool is used even with Joshua in triumphing over the Canaanite kings. He calls the Israelite captains after the war. He lays down the Canaanite kings on their bellies and he tells the Israelite captains to walk on, put their feet on their necks because they've been subdued under their feet. It's a symbol of conquering something, and that's what the Lord tells man to do. He's to subdue the earth, to bring it into subjection, the earth and its functions. Come on, man, he's telling us. Take it into hand. 
Bring it in subjection. Make it do your bidding through forceful and aggressive effort. Subdue it. Take this wild plot of the earth that I've assigned to you here in Eden, and you do to it what I did to the heavens and the earth in the span of six days. See, what God did in the span of His six creating days is to be a model for us in our daily lives. We're to labor hard six days. We are to have a plan on Monday morning. And we're to go out Monday, Tuesday through Saturday. And we're to stake it out. We're to cut it down. We're to plow it up. We're to plant it. We're to harvest it. And then on the Lord's Day, we're to look back and rest and say, you know what? That work was good. That was very good. As the Lord tells us, look, you're my image bearers, so be like me. Subdue. And then the second word, having seen subjugation there, look there in your outlines, to dominion. That would be the word rule. In the Hebrew, it's radah. It means to govern or reign or hold sway over. It means to dominate. You, man, he's saying, are to exercise lordship in the realms that I've given to you. Look, you're to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. I don't care what the animal rights activists say. We are not intruders on the earth. We are the caretakers of the earth. And once upon a time, there was a man who saw this wild stallion out leading the herd of horses on the prairie, and he thought to himself, you know what, that could be quite a tool if I could just lasso it, corral it, train it, saddle it, and ride it. That's a glorious thing. As man is ruling a creeping thing on the earth. And then there was a time when someone saw a peregrine falcon swooping down he thought to himself you know what that could be quite a servant of mine too as i could net it and i could train it and i could make sure it would land on my arm it could be quite a hunter for me that's the very thing that we're called to do to subdue and to rule or even again i know that the environmentalists may have a fit about this but there was a time when somebody saw one of those orca killer whales out in the open ocean and thought to himself you know what if i could net that thing and put it in a hammock and put it on the ship and then take it over to orlando and build a big pool where it could swim around and we could train that thing and it could splash people in the front rows and hundreds of thousands of people would see it. You know what? That's a glorious thing. Man is exercising dominion as he is ruling over the various spheres that God has given to him. You see, God has invested in man a certain mandate. We are to be his representatives in this world and we're to exercise a vigorous and assertive and a goodly, I'm not talking about recklessness, you know, you want to clear-cut a mountainside, well, then replant the thing. We're to be caretakers, right? We're to exercise a goodly dominion on the earth, and in doing this, we imitate God. We subdue, and we rule. So in essence here, what I'm saying is, who are we? We're men made in the image of God. We're not to be passive, purple, four balls, who sit back and let our environment push us around. 
We are to be the ones pushing around our environment. It is not to dominate us. We are to dominate it. We are to subdue and rule. We are not to permit ourselves to be subdued and to rule. We have been commissioned by God to aggressively assert ourselves as masters in the various spheres of our lives. This is a very important thing, man. To understand fundamentally who we are. When we get out of bed and put our feet on the ground and we head out into the garden, we are the rulers. We are the subduers. God has so assigned us not to stare out our bedroom windows and passively daydream what we might do if only we're to get out there and we're to do it with all of our might. Because we're men. We're men made in the image of God. And we have all kinds of insecurities, don't we? We have all kinds of internal fearings and tremblings that would make us insecure not to go out and live like that. But that's to deny the identity that God has given to us in the beginning. So that is textual exposition. Now come with me to sinful misconception. Sinful misconception. Whenever God speaks to man, the serpent hisses to man. We know that God tells us and gives us assignments in the various spheres of our lives, and the enemy would would whisper and suggest that we shouldn't. In fact, the enemy whispers in the forms of certain characters in our society like the psychologist and the therapist and the journalist and the sociologist and the animal rights activist. They will all tell us the world upside down. In fact, we listen to it so often because of the insecurities we have. I once saw there was a fellow here who's, who's in the army, and I once saw an army platoon flag that had a really fierce animal on it, and the words in the animal, on, on the platoon flag said, I can and I will. I like that motto. But truth be told, some of us walk around with an invisible flag that says, I probably can't, so I won't even try. Because we're wired to live contrary to the mission God has given to us. See, God wants us to have a confident dominion mindset, but instead, oftentimes, we put on a passive victimization mindset. It doesn't say, I can. We have these whispers inside that says, we can't, we're helpless, we won't even try. Look, for example... One sinful misconception is, I'm a genetic victim. I wish I could obey God. I wish I could take control of my life, but I'm handcuffed by my grandparents and what they gave to me, my genes, my my DNA, my chromosomes. And so, see, part of me, I'm, I'm German. And, you know, Germans can have a temper right. Germans can be short fused. And so I can say, you know, that's just my personality. And for me to, to yell at my kids and me to get angry with my wife, I mean, that's just the way I'm wired. And so I can't overcome it because of my DNA. You know, you see this uh, people who are drunks. I mean, that's what the Bible calls it, a drunkard, right? But what does society call it? An alcoholic. 
The person doesn't have a sin problem. The person has a disease. And so it's treated as if somebody has diabetes. I mean, the same is true with uh, guys who have, what's the latest, uh, uh, sexual disorder disease. You know, Bill Clinton, high-octane guy, high testosterone. Basically, we were led to believe that the guy's got some kind of a disease that he's a victim of instead of a sin that he can repent of. And the same thing is true regarding, I mean, look, I'm not saying that there's absolutely nothing to ADD, and I'm not saying that if your kid takes Ritalin, it's necessarily a terrible thing. But I tell you what, there are certain school systems in the country where over 50% of the boys are on Ritalin. You know what the main problem is? It's, it's not so much a physiological problem. A lot of it is a parental problem. Where dads like you and me don't grab those bulls by the horn and take them down the way they ought to be with some good, wholesome, biblical discipline. But we say the issue is just chromosomal and it's just physiological or obesity. I mean, gentlemen, some of us... I've traveled overseas, and if you go over to Japan and you see how slim these people are, and, and you're off and you see, and then you get back to the airport, back to Chicago, and you see your fellow countrymen, the obesity in Americans, and we can have the idea that, oh, it's just my metabolism, and I can't lose the weight, and that's not true either. You're not a victim. It's a choice that we make. So we have all these Excuses we give why I probably can't, so I won't even try. I can't have dominion over my food intake, right? I can't have dominion over my children, right? I can't have dominion over my temper. I can't subdue it and ruin it because I'm just a victim. Or how about the other one? Not I'm a genetic victim. Look there, I'm an emotional victim. That problem isn't my genetic makeup. It's, it's my upbringing, it's the way my parents and my significant others treated to me. You know, when I was young, I was like wet cement, my psyche. And uh, my dad made a gouge in me when he said, what's the matter with you, man? You ever have a dad who say that something to you? Maybe your dad has you know, harsh words. What's the matter with you? And, and then the young guy grows up wondering, yeah, what is the matter with me? And... Uh, Maybe some kind of abuse that took place in your childhood, and because of that abuse, it's just a destiny that you'll never be able to have control in certain areas of your life. I'm telling you, it's not so. I know a guy in one of the churches I've pastored in, the guy was sexually abused multiple times in his youth, and he wasn't destined to be some kind of a strange pervert. The guy knew certain temptations he had, but he was able to repent and be a mighty man of God, a deacon in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not victims. Ever read a book by Dr. Laura Schlesinger? It's called Bad Childhood, Good Life. In other words, we can. We're not victims of our past. Any emotional scars we may experience uh, all right, maybe there's a guy who was a, who was a Vietnam vet and he saw a lot of tough and difficult things and sometimes guys come home and I realize that post-traumatic stress is a real issue. But listen, they can be rebuilt and they can put their lives back together again. 
Because we can subdue. We can rule. But instead, some guys come after certain bad circumstances they had in their lives and say, that's why I can't fill in the blank. Find a job. Succeed in school. Stay off drugs. Get up on time. Keep my commitments. Do my devotions because of my past experience. It's a cop-out. It's an excuse. Instead of having a dominion mindset, it's a victimization mindset. The third would be, well, I'm a circumstantial victim. Add to my woes, it's my environment that's filled with antagonists that make my life impossible. And that's why I don't have to subdue and rule, because I got this boss, and the boss really aggravates me, and that's why at work I can't. Or I got this wife, and she's so contentious, and the way she handles it and the children, and that's why I can't. And I got the, she, by the way, she would have said, I got this husband, and he's so ornery or so lazy, and that's why I can't. Or I got these kids. These kids are so obnoxious, and that's why they're so unruly. Or I got this company that makes impossible demands on me. Or I got this government that they're creating these impossible environments for me. Wall Street occupying Wall Street. Anybody here was over occupying Wall Street? Carrying the placard that says, where's my free lunch? Anybody there? See, this is a victimization mindset. Why don't you go off and get a job? Or go off and be an entrepreneur? Instead of protesting on Wall Street as to why you can't find a job. So what I'm saying is, God tells us to subdue and rule. Have a dominion mindset. But it's so easy for us to have all these excuses why we can't and have a victimization mindset. And that leads us to, then, biblical illustration. Biblical illustration. I just want to highlight certain fellows in the Bible who were men of dominion. They could have put on the victimization mindset and played the victim and given the excuses. By the way, these guys are for me. And again, I, I'm, I'm grabbing me by the scruff of the neck. If you guys get some incidental help by it, fine and well. But, but this is an issue that I, and I suspect many others, deal with as well. Here are godly saints who were faced with daunting tasks, and they put on a dominion mindset instead of saying, I can't, but they said, no, with the help of God, I think I can. And God help me, I will find a way. They're not going to be... Passive purple four balls. These guys were acoustic wielding players on the table of life. Look at Noah. If ever there was a guy that was given an errand and a job by his father, that seemed overwhelming. It was Noah. I want you to make me an ark, Noah. 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. I mean, if... He had all kinds of excuses he could have made. Man, I got ungodly parents, and they didn't instill discipline into me in my youth. And I got brothers who mock me and neighbors who laugh at me. Besides that, I got a 500-year-old body, and this is in pre-Home Depot times. But you know what? The text tells us, thus Noah did. He found a way to do it. Now, it took him a good, better part of a century to do it. 
But he stuck to it, and he did it. Or what about Abraham? Abraham, Genesis 14, his nephew Lot is kidnapped by a five-king confederacy with the other Sodomites. They head northward. Abraham hears about it. Did he have a victimization mindset? I better not get involved. Just going to stay put here under the oaks of Mamre. No, no, not at all. Abraham had a dominion mindset. He had a cue stick in the form of 318 fighting men. And he took that stick and he chased those Canaanite kings and he rescued, he found a way against overwhelming odds. Or take Joseph. Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. Now if ever there was a guy who got a raw deal, and emotionally speaking, we can understand why he would curl up into a passive purple four-ball while laying in the bottom of that pit into which his brothers had tossed him, it would be Joseph. But, but Joseph didn't do it. They sold him off. The Ishmaelites took him down to Egypt. There he is in the barn in Potiphar's plantation. And what does he do? He doesn't just mope and pout. He finds a way. He does what he can. He rises to the cream, to the top in Potiphar's household because he was a guy who knew how to work hard. He knew how to be an administrator. He knew how to rule. He knew how to subdue. He gets framed by Mrs. Potiphar and her perfume and her negligee, and he was a man of dominion, morally speaking. How could I do such a thing and sin against my God? By the way, there's a lesson for us men having dominion in our Mrs. Potiphar-filled world, thrown into prison. The butler forgets about him, but he had something. He didn't have a cue stick, but he had a broom in prison, and he swept, and he rose to the top, and eventually he subdued all of Egypt under his feet because there was a man who was responsible for little things, and he was given larger things. Or take Gideon. We can all relate to Gideon, Judges 6. He's he's an Israelite, and the Israelites are to be exercising dominion and rule over the promised land. But where is Gideon? He's he's in a wine press. He's cowering. You're not supposed to be. You're an Israelite. By the way, the angel comes and says, uh, refers to him as a mighty warrior. That's what he should have been. And eventually he found 300 lapping men who had the eye of the tiger, and he ended up with these 300 subduing the Midianites, who were as many as the sands on the seashore, and he put them under his feet because he subdued and he ruled against difficult odds. Now, we could speak about David's mighty men, but let's just leap to Nehemiah. I mean, there is a fella. I really like Nehemiah. There's a man of dominion if you want to model The guy came from the pillows of Persia. He heard that Jerusalem was in disarray and burned and rubbled. He arrived and he thought he was going to rebuild. But remember his night ride? He couldn't even get through the dung gate and the fish gate. There was so much rubble. By the morning he was probably so discouraged. It's far worse. Gather around all of you civic dwellers. It's far worse than I thought. I'm heading back to Persia. It's not what he said. He said, we're in a difficult situation. But he says, come on, I'm not going to throw in the towel now. 
Let us rise and let us build. And the text says by the fourth chapter that he finished the walls in 52 days. He found a way. Now, do you ever feel like your life is broken down rubble? You ever feel like there's no way out of this? You ever get up? Sometimes it's pastors on a Monday morning, isn't it, Justin? Isn't it, Justin? On a Monday, how am I going to even get up? I just want to go back and crawl into bed. No, get up! Get up! Look at a guy like Nehemiah. God has called us to a task, and so help us God finding a way to subdue or rule. You want a man of dominion? Look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, his ministry was not characterized by always being in a trade wind. Oftentimes he was facing a contrary hurricane. He's, he's persecuted at Lystra. He's stoned and dragged out for dead outside the town. Now, who could blame him after having been resuscitated for heading back home to Antioch or heading back home to Jerusalem? But instead, he set his face like flint and headed toward Thessalonica and, and continued on in his ministry. That's the way we got to be. And I think the ultimate man of dominion is our Lord Jesus. If ever there was somebody who had an excuse as to why he couldn't, it was our Savior. He was born to poor parents. He was called illegitimate. They basically called him a bastard. He was hated, he was ridiculed, he was entrapped, he was betrayed, he was scourged, he was crucified. I mean, our lives are tough, and we oftentimes feel like quitting. In fact, we can get resentful toward our Heavenly Father for the lot that's been dished out to us. But look at the Son. He stuck to his errand until it was finished. He stood as a brass pillar till the last breath was beaten out of his nostrils, and it was finished. He is the ultimate man of dominion who subdued and ruled and did what his father told him to do. So, I'm just saying, men, when we're faced with intimidating obstacles... We're not to passively surrender to our environment and to our circumstances, but we are. So help us God. We're to seek to rule and subdue that we might get the well-done, good and faithful servant from our Lord Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about doing things in the strength of our own power, not at all. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord build the house, we labor in vain to build it. Lest the Lord guards the city, the watchman stands guard in vain. But beloved, we need to so help us God. Just like Nehemiah, he strapped on the sword and the trowel. And so God helped him to build and to finish it. Man of dominion is Nehemiah. And that's what we need to be. So that's our biblical illustration. Now let's, in the home stretch, just talk about some practical application. What are you talking about now, Mark? How does this really apply to the brass tacks of our daily lives? Consider with me, first of all, how about, how about in your devotional life? We need to subdue and rule our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. For from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. It's like a, it's like a garden. 
You passively neglect a garden that's going to quickly become a forest of weeds. My wife, one summer in May, she had Norm, our neighbor, bring his rototiller over. And she said, Norm, aren't you a rototiller? And she had it all staked out. And he says, you sure you want that much, Mrs. Chansky? Yeah, yeah, I want that much. He said, maybe about one quarter, but no, no, I want that much. So the whole thing was rototilled out, and she began to work it, and she began to weed it in May, and she had to be in fights, and he fight off the weeds, and he went to Iowa for a two-week vacation, and we came back, and it's like an atomic explosion of weeds had come over that area. She lost the war. She let it go. The season, there was no harvest because she had let it go. And what I'm saying, our hearts are kind of like that. We can't passively permit our hearts to become a wilderness. We got instead resolved to daily exercise heart dominion by like scheduling a time where it's a priority task that we get out there and we, we uproot certain attitudes and, and pull out certain behaviors and plant in certain truths, because above all else, we're to guard our hearts. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of God, and on it he meditates day and night. Day and night. We've got to choke out the thorns and the thistles. We've got to use the word of God. We gotta fertilize, we gotta water with prayer. Psalm 5:3. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, O Lord, I will lay out my request before you and wait in expectation. What about you? What about me? Do we exercise dominion over our devotional life? Or instead, are we like uh, I mean, you talk about something passive. How about a tumbleweed? Where's, the, where's our friend from Texas? Tall Texan here. Where is he? Yeah, there he is, right there. Everything's big in Texas. This guy's about 6'6". Six, six. My son lives in Texas. Tumbleweed blows in Texas. A tumbleweed goes wherever the wind goes. And you know what? Sometimes that's what our prayer life is like. Our devotion. Wherever the wind of our emotion goes, if we feel like it, we'll pray in the morning, right? If we feel like it, We'll open our Bibles, but if the ESPN website, and we feel like that, we'll go to that. Men, we've got to exercise dominion over our emotions. We've got to keep our own hearts. I mean, come on, let's get real. You, know, you, you see me, I'm a pastor, or, or Pastor Justin, who's here. You, you, think that, you think that pastors feel like they want to read the Bible every morning? There was an old pastor who said to me, a young Christian who'd just been baptized about a year earlier came to his office and he had a look on his face like he was so guilty. And, and the pastor thought, oh, this guy must have robbed a party store last night or something. But instead he, you know, what's the problem? What's, what's going on? The guy hesitated and he says, Pastor, I, I, I just feel like I don't, I don't want to do my devotions anymore. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to pray Oh, you don't, is that right? You don't want to. He says, how many times do you think I want to go up those stairs into my office and pray? I mean, how many days per week do you think I feel like I want to go? And uh, the, the young guy says, 
four times? The pastor says, you're way high. See, the point is, we, we don't determine our devotional lives by what we feel. We need, we need to exercise dominion and subdue in our devotional life. Duty! You know, sometimes in some Christian circles, the word duty is a naughty word. I'm in the South now, so I can quote Robert Lee. Robert Lee says this, Duty is the most sublime word in the English language. And I agree with it. Duty, to follow my King Jesus. My Lord Jesus told me, above all else, guard your heart. He didn't say, if you feel like it, you read your Bible. And if you feel like it, you pray. No, I, it's a duty, it's a priority in my life. And then, devotional life, dads, you realize that you are the priest, not only of your own heart, but you're the priest in your household. What about devotional life for your family? Family devotions? You guys do that in the South here? You ought to. Job chapter 1, when he sensed his children had sinned, he'd get them up in the morning. We are to be men who say, as for me and my house, we're to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Just going to say, Dad, listen, I'm telling you, you make it a resolve to meet with your family and open up the Word of God, I suggest to you, on a daily basis if you can. You know what? Look at the young guys here. This young guy in the red striped shirt, he came into the house when he was about, oh, maybe two, maybe a week old, brought home. You got that about 7,300 days with that boy. And let's liken his spiritual capacity to a backyard swimming pool. And let's even uh, say, a uh, bucket a little bit bigger than this. If you throw 7,300 buckets into that pool, it's going to be filled to the brim by the end. So, You've got 7,300 days to pour in the truths of the Word of God from him. And I just ask you the question, by the time he leaves when he's 19 or 18 years old to head off to, what, UNC or NC State or Wake Forest, maybe? Is he going to be somebody, spiritually speaking, who has depth or is shallow? And a lot of it has to do with how faithful were you on a daily basis to pour in the Word of God. Just ponder that. It's... it's Line on line, precept on precept, a little here, a little there. Exercise dominion in your devotional life. Or how about in your mental life? In your mental life. Just read last week, there's a book I'm reading called Undefiled by a man named Schomburg. Read this one, Pastor, it's a really good one. And he's talking about purity. He gave some statistics that said this. In American Christian churches, he said, over 50% of the men have a big pornography problem. So I'd be pretty naive to think that there's nobody in these blue chairs that is fighting that battle. I mean, I'm telling you, we've got to fight that battle. Because this is one of the chief strategies of the enemy to drag souls of professing Christians down to hell. It's not that you're saved by your works, but your works proved whether or not you are saved. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Lord Jesus says in the same passage in Matthew 5, 
If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. And just on the heels of that, he says, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out and throw it far from you. I just read today about a man in 1961 in the Antarctic who realized he had an appendicitis. He was a physician. And he had to do surgery on himself because the thing had ruptured, and he had to get that toxic part out of his body. And he, he had a mirror, and he had guys handing him scalpels, but he had to exercise dominion and cut that thing out. Gentlemen, I'm telling you, that sin is of such a nature that we've got to so help us God put it to death. Romans 8 says this, If you're living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And guys, I'm not talking about things that, that's just your problem on that side of the pulpit. I know what it is to need to battle and to fight and to gouge and to cut off and to throw far from. May God help us to exercise dominion in our mental life. How about also in our marital life? In our marital life, you know, we, we work hard in the daytime and then we come home and uh, we got our wives. Our wives. And but Doug Wilson says this regarding if we're to love Christ, if we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, he says this staring at the idiot box until it's time for sex is not one of God's appointed means for doing so. That's being a passive purple four-ball if there ever was one. If there were to love our bride as Christ loved his bride, when he was walking among his bride on this earth, he was always assertively talking, wasn't he? Talking on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking in the Matthew 13 parables. He's talking as he speaks across the waters to the congregation on the shoreline. He's talking in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking in the Upper Room Discourse. He's always talking, talking to his bride. What about us? Do you talk to your wife? She might say, if I asked her, would she say you're a talker? Or would she say you're more like a tomb? Some of us are like tombs, aren't we? We can go off after dinner down and look at our computer or read our newspaper or, or tinker out in the garage, but we don't talk to them. And if you went home tonight... Well, she was folding the wash by the sofa. And you sat down next to her and said, Honey, talk to me. What you been thinking lately? After you got the smelling salts and aroused her, that would really make a change in your marriage. Let's be men who are, in our marital lives, communicating. There was a time when I and my wife had a bit of a spat. Uh, I said, Hey, I'm going to go over and buy a computer for the family, uh, for the guys. And I said, I'm taking Jared with this for Christmas, you know. She said, you can't take Jared with because it won't be a surprise. I said, honey, look, I want to teach Jared how to dicker with the man in the marketplace. I don't care if it's a surprise for Christmas or not. Come on, Jared, let's go against Diane's will. I got back, great deal. But she was not enthused. In fact, it was Arctic ice between me and her for day one, day two, Day three, there was a stench in my house. You know how when there's a stench in the kitchen, sometimes it's because something died and crawled behind the refrigerator. And how are you going to get rid of that stench? You've got to pull the refrigerator out, and you've got to clean out behind it. 
And sometimes that's what we got to do in our relationships with our wives when we smell a stench and our, honey, come on, we got to go off to the bedroom and we got to talk about this thing. We got to subdue and rule and, and lead in our marriages. And you know what? Generally speaking, when we compassionately and tenderly and in a Christ-like way communicate with our wives and lead, they come out of that bedroom and they basically bake pretty sweet bread. And the aroma of the house is very pleasant, isn't it? When we aren't passive, out tinkering in the garage, but when we are at the headship of our families. Well, how about also our vocational life? Vocational life, exercising dominion. I'm glad some of the young guys are here. Yeah, young guys. It's such a crucial time in life, especially in 2011. There was a guy who played soccer with my son years ago. His name was Aaron. He was a senior. He was about to graduate, so I was in the parking lot after the game. Aaron had splashed the goal a couple of times. Hey, high fives to Aaron. Good job. I said, Aaron, what's for next year? What are your plans? He was working as a clerk as a uh, stalker in a grocery store right now. And what are your plans for next year? What college? What? I don't know. I don't know. Hey, 18 years old, and you don't have a plan? Look, you've you got to have a plan. We find the scriptures say in Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. You guys need to have vocational plans. I mean, it used to be when some of your dads were growing up, you could come out and you could maybe find yourself in Michigan, a job in the auto industry that was going to pay you $18, $22, $25 an hour, full benefits. You end up getting $70,000, $80,000 a year and, and a handsome pension. But you know what? Those days are in our rearview mirror. And you young guys, you've got to have a plan. What are you going to do in those years, that sweet spot of 18 through 23, when you make a plan to be maybe an engineer, to be maybe an accountant, to be maybe a physical therapist, to be maybe an attorney, to be maybe uh, oh, some other skill. Doesn't have to be college, but the point is, I'm just saying, look, have a plan, guys. Have a plan. Because Aaron, who didn't have a plan, who ended up wandering into his college years, and he didn't frankly wake up from his stupor until he was 27 years old, a wife and two kids working at a $10 an hour job. You know what? By then it was too late. He was stuck. Stuck for the next five decades. And I'm just telling you, you guys, you got this sweet spot, you young guys. Dads, encourage your young guys to exercise dominion in their vocational life, to have a plan. And even the guys who are dads, you know, there can be a, a phenomenon of our being passive in our workplace. Instead of being a go-getter in the workplace, we can be a guy who just survives. In fact, we can say, well, I don't want to be so carnal as to be so aggressive and enterprising. I'm more spiritually minded. That is a cop-out, men. Whatever we do, we're to do it under the Lord with all of our might. And we're to be excellent. So help us, God, in everything. that we, Whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, we're to do it all to the glory of God in our vocational life. How about in 
our parental life. Our parental life. Fathers, bring up your... It doesn't say youth pastors. Bring up your children in the fear and instruction. It says... It doesn't say mothers. It doesn't say Christian day school teachers. It says fathers. Fathers. So, so let's say that you're watching some Tar Heel basketball. And they're beating up on the Michigan State Spartans, which you guys usually do. And you're, you're, you're focused on that, and your you're three-year-old or your four-year-old is throwing a tantrum in front of mom, and you're, you're sitting there like a couch potato, a passive purple four-ball, instead of rousing yourself up and going over and subduing and ruling. Man, we need to, in our parental life, the image bears of God. It says in Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares the rod hates his son. He is careful to discipline, loves him. And don't think I'm some kind of an ogre. Let me just quote dear, dear Dr. Dobson. It says, When a parent loses the early confrontations with the child, the later conflicts become harder to win. The parent who never wins, who is too weak or too tired or too busy to win, is making a costly mistake that will come back to haunt him during the child's adolescence. In fact, I was once in an airport and I sat there with a... Where's Merle here? Merle, where are you? Yeah. He looked like a really sharp accountant guy sitting there with a suit and a nice dimple on his tie. And he had his daughter sitting at his left and his son sitting at his right. His, His daughter had pink hair almost a uh, fluorescent pink. And his son had purple hair. And I just sat and thought to myself, that guy is reaping the harvest, I suggest, of recklessness and carelessness, of not subduing and ruling in those younger years. Just, just, just pondering. i got to get up off the couch! And i got to not fear that adolescent teenage. You know, sometimes we can kind of parent in such a way we don't want to cross him. We don't want to upset him. We don't dare to challenge him. I know, that, I know it's true that we shouldn't uh, provoke our children to wrath and don't treat a 16-year-old like a 6-year-old. But gentlemen, we've got to find ways to subdue and rule and parent our children. And just, uh, how about in church life? Just in church life. How about, how about even going to church? Uh, some, some of us have a hard time showing up, getting out of our PJs on the Lord. Well, you know, I mean, you make it. You make it to work on time every day. You serve your employer. You give him your premium every day. Why don't you give to your Savior your premium on his day? I mean, he, he served you. Won't you serve him? How about saying, just as for me and my house... We're going to serve the Lord. If, if our church has AM and PM services, we're going to be there. We're going to be good churchmen. That is so contrary to this feeling-driven society in which we live in. And again, I'll go back to Robert E. Lee. Duty. Yeah, duty. It's not a naughty word. It's a very spiritual word. I think he's right. The most sublime word in the Christian language. I will serve my king. David in the second Samuel 24, when he offers up the first sacrifice on what is really Mount Zion, when a guy named Araunah offers him 
a full worship kit. Here, take the oxen, uh, take the whole land. I give it to you all. And David says this, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And he gave him a fortune to buy the worship kit to serve God. Beloved, we need to worship God with the expensive stuff of our lives. Attention and time. Give him the best of our time because he is worthy. And I'll just say lastly, lastly, subdue and rule in your eternal life. Just ponder the implications of that. Listen, some of you young guys here, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Have you yet closed with the Lord Jesus Christ? You think, I'll wait till I get to be old as my dad. Maybe as old as, uh, this looks about 20, maybe 19, 20. He's got some facial hair here. I'll wait till I get to be old, as old as him. Listen, or, or you, maybe you're just a pretend Christian here. Listen, don't think I got time later on because you could leave Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. You could be heading out down one of these country roads and you could be struck like my dad was in an accident and you, like him, could be thrown from the car laying there on the gravel shoulder of the road with your lifeblood pouring out of your mouth and your nose and your ears. And I'm telling you what, there ain't going to be time and attention to be able to think straight, to close with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're paying attention to me. Listen to me. There's a heaven. There's a hell. And you're going to be standing at judgment day. And one day you're going to be sent to one place or the other. You're never dying soul. Pay attention to me. You can understand me now. I was once at the bedside of a man who was dying of cancer. And he, he couldn't think straight because of the morphine he was taking. His family had asked me to come to witness to him. And you know what? I could snap my finger. He could barely pay attention to me. And that could be your case in, in 10 or 15 minutes, having left this place on the side of the road, and you can't think straight. Listen to me. You can think straight right now. There are people who are in hell, weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth right now, that would give everything that is in them to be sitting in your navy blue chair right now and to have an opportunity to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would love to be where you are right now, to have the opportunity again. And you got it. And I would just say, subdue and rule over the whispers of the enemy and the suggestions that say, you can wait till you get whiskers on your face later like him. Take care of it then. Or you can wait until, until tomorrow. The devil loves that word, tomorrow. But today, today is the day of salvation. Subdue, rule, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've made us in your image. We thank you that you've given us an assignment to subdue and to rule and to be like you. And we confess that lest you build our house, we labor in vain. We depend on you for all things. But help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is you who, who wills and enables us to act according to your will. So please, Father, help us. We, we confess that we're sinful on both sides of the pulpit. 
And we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit so that we could be like the Lord Jesus and that he would say to us in the end, well done, good and faithful servants. Help us to keep our hearts. Help us to work hard in our shops. Help us to love our wives, to love our children, and help us to be lovers of the Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.